Hello, and welcome to Wooden Teeth, a podcast about truth-telling on politics and health. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today's truth. Our mental health system is in serious need of reform. On today's pod, we'll be addressing one component of that needed reform through the reporting lens of Susan Green. Susan is a reporter, editor, and coach for the Colorado News Collaborative, also known as CoLab. She was editor and executive director of the Colorado Independent before it merged with CoLab and a longtime reporter and Metro columnist at the Denver Post. Her distinguished record as an investigative journalist includes Trashing the Truth, a series that helped exonerate five men, prompted state and federal reforms on evidence preservation, and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in investigative journalism. She was also selected as a 2020-2021 Rosalind Carter Mental Health Journalism Fellow and is the inaugural recipient of the Benjamin von Sternenfels Rosenthal Grant for Mental Health Investigative Journalism. In December of last year, she kicked off an investigative series called On Edge, with the publishing of a story titled State Mental Health System is Failing Coloradans. The piece focused on the operations of Colorado's 17 regional community mental health centers that the state utilizes to stabilize people in crisis and treat Coloradans who are on Medicaid or can't afford private treatment. In the piece, she reports that the state's payment system inadvertently creates a financial incentive for the centers to take on fewer ill people and charge higher costs while also protecting them from competition. Further, she reports that the centers have been charging taxpayers up to 17 times more than independent Medicaid providers for the same services, and that some centers have been paid for programs they've not actually provided, with no pushback from the state agencies charged with regulating them. There's much, much more, and that's why you should read the piece. I also want to note that before I recorded this pod, I reached out to the association who represents these community mental health centers, which is called the Colorado Behavioral Health Council, or CBHC, and requested an interview to ensure that their perspective was heard, but they did not respond. So if you're interested, you can visit CBHC's website where you can find a letter they wrote to Governor Jared Polis shortly after Susan's piece was published to learn a bit more about their perspective. For now, you've heard enough from me. Let's hear from Susan Green. Susan Green, welcome. Thanks, Jake. Good to be here. So how did you get down this topical road? I got down this topical road by really wondering why Colorado ranks consistently and has for years at the bottom. And and this year we reached the very bottom of rankings nationally for mental illness um, and for access to care. And I wanted answers and nobody was giving them to me. Well, you eventually got a lot of answers. I think shook a lot of people up. Um, I, I shared with you earlier that, honestly, I think there's going to be some people who are in my world who will even be annoyed that I'm talking to you uh, because you you did ruffle some feathers. And I guess my first question is, have you received any blowback since the piece was published? Um, 
positive blowback. The negative blowback has been from the centers themselves and um, sort of between the lines from certain state bureaucrats and one or two lawmakers. Um, I find it kind of funny that those people's feathers are ruffled when we have these rankings that I mentioned and that an untold number of Coloradans, including the sickest, most mentally ill, um, most vulnerable people are not being caught by our, by our so-called um, mental health safety net. So really too bad that they're, they're feathers, they're poor feathers, because we have, um, if you live in Denver and you drive anywhere, you can see these people out on the street today um, as it snowed. So really, whose feathers do we really care about here? Well, let's dive into your reporting. Uh, you do a great job examining system level shortcomings, but you also zero in on the lives of the people in the system, both those who provide the care and those who need it. This included your reporting on how some staffers at community health centers felt pressure to drop their toughest cases. Could you share what you found there? Yeah, so um, just for anyone out there who may not know, these 17 community mental health centers have served as the core, the basis of Colorado's mental health safety net for 50 or 60 years. And um, they're private nonprofits. And um, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, this is a very layered, complex system um, that has never really been scrutinized. But I think we all know people who have needed the system um, and have waited for appointments um, or beds way longer than they should have waited. People who are um, actively suicidal, people who are um, completely delusional, who are told, you know, well, you're just going to have to wait for for three weeks to 11 months for an appointment. So, um, you know, one problem is that. Another problem is, as I said, because they're private nonprofits, there's um, very little transparency um, into uh, how they spend the um, billions of dollars that they've received over the decades. And uh, I would argue, and I, I think the, the stories prove it, and there's more to come, that the people who are um, tasked with regulating and overseeing this system and for ensuring accountability have not done so. Um, there are very few explanations for why some centers um, charge several times more for the same service than others. Um, there are uh, major blind spots and we have had whistleblowers and, and clients and patients of these um, uh, centers coming forward. Um, this is not like super high tech, you know, reporting with a bunch of, you know, um, bells and whistles. This is basic shoe leather journalism. You write a story and people come forward and the response to these stories have been unlike anything I've ever seen in my career and I've written controversial stories. I covered politics. I've done investigative reporting for years, um, deep dive investigative reporting. This is a nonpartisan issue. Um, people in rural Colorado, as well as people in urban Colorado are feeling the absence of help from these centers. 
And um, interestingly, as the state prepares to launch a new behavioral health administration, a new state cabinet level department rather than an agency um, within human services, um, there have been efforts by the um, lobbying group for these centers to really, um, even before it launches, and even as the state calls for purportedly, you know, massive reform, transformational reform to the system, efforts to water down um, new levels of, of accountability and transparency. And to help people understand how this system affects people at the ground human level, you shared a few anecdotes in your piece about both the people who were seeking care and were eventually denied it, as well as the pressure experienced by the people providing the care to shed their toughest cases. Could you share one or two of those? Sure. I wrote about um, a man named Matt Vinola, um, who is in Denver and has a pretty severe case of paranoid schizophrenia, as well as some um, substance abuse disorder. And he had a mom, um, a mother named Janet Vanderlock, who was as fierce an advocate for him as, as you could get in terms of um, making sure he got to appointments, making sure that um, he was seen, he got the right doctors, they were paying enough attention. Um, sometimes it, it entailed sort of dragging him in and his feeling about um, the mental health center of Denver um, and his level of trust in it really waned as they called police on him um, on occasion. And um, they eventually just kicked him out of care because as often happens, these are the most difficult um, clients or patients. Sometimes their Medicaid coverage sort of runs out um, or they're deemed to be malingerers, um, which is um, if you really look at it in terms of medical and um, sort of basic human ethics, someone who's defined as, you know, well, they're, they're not getting better, so let's give up on them. Um, so Matt Vanola um, is, is out on the street. As we speak, his mother took her life after another of her sons took his life. So uh, without his mother advocating for him um, or literally um, driving around town looking for him, um, he's been missing for, for several months now um, to the rest of his family and does not have someone advocating for him. And that was one of the lucky ones because he had such a strong advocate in Janet, his mother. Um, many of these families, especially you know families that are caregiving um, and obviously need to work and do all the other things that families need to do, are so overwhelmed um, and beaten down in some cases that it's it's really to muster the energy or the time or the um, patience for the kind of bureaucracy that you have to deal with to get your loved one cared for or get them a competency evaluation when they get arrested over and over again because they have voices in their head and they're delusional. Um, it's, it's exhausting. And um, so that's how it plays out. Um, there are other stories in, in that story and uh, other stories I've written in this series that show how it plays out in other ways. Sometimes these centers have contracts and jails and the quality of their oversight um, is, is woefully lacking and, and responsible, I think, for some of the 
suicides that happen in jails in Colorado. Um, the list goes on and on. I mean, these centers are supposed to provide crisis care, which means they're supposed to show up in addition to or with the police in several jurisdictions. And um, in several jurisdictions, the local officials, the sheriffs, the county commissioners, the police say they don't they don't show up. That they're being paid to show up. And, and so where that money goes for being paid to show up is kind of a mystery. And that's where the state comes in. Let's get into the money in just a second. But first, at a more basic level, how do these centers get these contracts? What are the mechanisms for accountability? Well, I mean, they got the contracts literally 50 or 60 years ago when JFK, um, you know, called for deinstitutionalization of the mentally ill and, and treatment in communities. These community mental health centers, nonprofits popped up all over the state as well as the country. And um, they were thought of very highly because this was a progressive movement that Kennedy had started. And I think that the humane thing to do Um and they were always really working with, with you know, limited resources. Um, and I think, um, you know, it have helped a lot of people. I mean, in fairness, really have helped a lot of people. But the levels of mental illness, the levels of addiction, um, the level of need, as well as the population have grown over the years. And these centers have not kept up. Partly, I think it it, it has to do with funding, although to be clear with Obamacare and Medicaid reform, you know, there are a lot more people covered under, uh, and there's a lot more money out there to cover people. Um, but yet, you know, you're seeing the wait times, um, get longer. You're seeing the quality of care get worse. You're seeing, um, and there is a workforce shortage in fairness. Um, a lot of you know, these centers are nonprofits. They're not flush with money. Um, many of the people who work in them can get paid more or have easier jobs by doing telehealth or working in the private sector. But it's also the case, and my reporting has has bore that out, that people have just quit because, you know, you hear a lot of nurses, for example, in the news lately are quitting because they're understaffed in their hospitals and they the quality of care is abysmal and they feel like they can't do their jobs. Well, that's exactly what happens in these, these mental health centers. You also dive into CEO pay. And I was a little surprised yeah. doing, doing podcasts, you know, doesn't pay this well. Wait, uh, you're not making $819,000 a year, Jake. Tell us, tell us more about that. Yeah. Um, Dr. Carl Clark at the Mental Health Center of Denver, who's been there for ages, makes $819,000 a year. And, and that was in a year when they were turning people away from care. We don't have their 990s, the, the financials to see what he was making, you know, the, the following year. And as, as COVID has hit us and made the need even greater um, among his uh, coverage area, which is the city and county of Denver. Um, and so he makes a lot of money. You know, there's also questions about other financial things like Aurora, the mental health center there, um, spends 48 cents on administrative costs for every dollar it spends on care. Um, and because these are not public agencies, they're private nonprofits, we really don't have a very clear window into why. And we've had 
a sort of litany of explanations that are sort of all over the map from officials there. But um, there are some some questionable spending procedures that the these centers um, work largely with Medicaid dollars. And so their Medicaid funding is based on this formula of how many um, how many people they treated the year prior and um, what their expenses were the year prior. And so if you look at that formula, I won't get too into it because it's kind of wonky for a podcast, but it really incentivizes treating less people and charging more. And when I say charging more, they're charging taxpayers more. So um, Denver is charging, um, I think, 17 times what um, a private uh, Medicaid provider would charge for a certain service per hour, um, or in some cases, less than that, but 10 times more, eight times more. It depends on the, the actual service. And um, I think everyone understands these centers are required to, re- to, to provide a breadth of services. Um, I think everyone understands their, their Medicaid reimbursement rate will be um, bigger than independent providers who don't have the same kind of overhead. But I'm not sure that really, I, I am quite sure that doesn't <laughs> explain why, um, what accounts for 17 times more. Right. So to uh, attempt to... Um, at a dumbed-down level, capture how the reimbursement works. Is it fair to say that the centers report how much it costs in total to service their their clients, and then you take that and divide it by, you're shaking your head? Yeah, no, that would be ideal, um, but they're just reporting their budget, right? Their budget, and right, so right. That's not the same thing as how much it costs to service their clients. Um, gotcha. You know, Dr. Carl Clark making $819,000 a year um, is not reflective of what it costs to service their clients. Gotcha. So you take the budget, you divide it by the, the services provided, and that's how you get the rate. So if you offer fewer services, the, 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 uh, the per unit uh, reimbursement would go up. Right, if you serve fewer people, actually, right. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I'd also point out that in your piece, there's a table that lays all this data out um, center by center, um, and you can go check it out yourself uh, when it comes to CEO pay or what each center gets reimbursed. And there is wide variance there. Not every CEO, for example, gets paid over $800,000. Only only one does. Um, so you can, I encourage you to go check out the piece and ask your own questions and arrive at your own conclusions. So you mentioned earlier the new Behavioral Health Administration that is being created in Colorado. It comes online this year. The governor just appointed the department's first leader, Dr. Morgan Medlock. What is a a realistic vision for what success could be for a department like this, one that's charged with uh, coordinating uh, a system that sounds like it's in need of of vast improvement? What's realistic for this department to accomplish in the next year or two? I think it's realistic um, to expect that the state oversees these centers more closely. 
And that could look like a number of things, but one thing it should look like, and, and I'm basing that on the reporting I'm doing now in the next phase of this project, is that the state has um, real auditors who work for the state, not relying on the independent auditors, um, you know, audits that, that the centers do themselves, but real auditors looking into things like quality of care, um, the ethics around the quality of care, looking into things like fraud, uh, looking into things um, regarding who they're having do what kind of jobs, whether the people doing certain kinds of jobs in these centers are even qualified to do these types of jobs. Looking into, I think most importantly, I mentioned Matt Vanola earlier, looking into what happens when people slip through the cracks or, you know, in Matt's case, are literally fired as clients by these centers. Um, one um, recommendation of the task force that was created to set priorities for the BHA, this new administration, um, was something called care coordination. And, um, you know, the state goes really far and makes a big emphasis about this task force of, you know, stakeholders that, that recommended it. Well, in a report that came out, um, I think late last year it, about this new BHA, there was no discussion at all about care coordination. And they do this sort of smoke and mirrors thing where they confuse care coordination with something called care navigation. Um, care coordination is literally you're Matt Vinola or Matt Vinola's mother, and you've been your, your child or Matt himself has been fired from the system. Someone who takes up Matt's case, right, and makes sure he's getting care somewhere, if not through that community mental health center, some alternative, um, some place that he trusts that hasn't burned him, that hasn't called police on him, um, that literally helps you go step by step through through what is a really complicated system and, and a, a bunch of really complicated needs that he has. Again, he has substance abuse disorder and paranoid schizophrenia. I mean, there's a lot, a lot going on there. Um, and so, you know, they put out this report and it only talks about care navigation, not care coordination and care navigation is a bunch of like technological um, you know, improving computer systems. So they're more user friendly. Right. And there's a really big difference between a bunch of like, you know, tech, like um, I remember, you know, when, when the city and county of Denver launched its 311 um, program where you just call one number and, you know, it's supposed to like really connect you with, <laughs> with city services. And here we are, you know, a decade or more later. And I think there are a lot of, um, people who don't think it, it's as helpful as um, it should be. And it's certainly, and that's just to people who are talking about thing, needing things like garbage pickup, right? When mm -hmm. you are an acutely mentally ill person, right? When you're someone who is on the edge in terms of um, uh, potentially taking your life, you know, these sort of um better phone um, and online services are not necessarily going to save your life. And so um, I think the real question for the legislature as it contemplates rules and priorities, putting them into law for this new agency as it launches on the 1st of July 
is whether this meaningful care coordination, not some like sorry excuse for, you know, um, care coordination, not just technological fixes, but real people fixes um, to keep people from falling through the cracks. Um, I think that we should absolutely expect that. Um, and when you say realistically, you know, we just can't afford to have more people taking their lives. We can't afford to have more people untreated and living on the streets. Um, even if you don't care about mental health, um, it doesn't affect your life. You might care about um, mass shootings, your safety, your kids' safety in schools. This touches every issue that um, we deal with as a state. And again, it's not partisan. So I don't think those are, um, you know, I don't think the question is what can we realistically expect from the, the, this new department in the next year and a half? I think the question is, how did it get so bad and so lame that the safety net is actually for many, many people and including many of the hardest cases, not a safety net at all? The fiber, if you will, of what makes up the safety net are the people who are actually delivering the care. And you mentioned earlier, there is a workforce crisis uh, similar to what we see in, in, within healthcare and in, in the wider economy. I was wondering um, if you heard from the people providing the care more about what conditions need to exist in order to improve this crisis. What do we need to do to get more people into this field to deliver quality care? Well, I mean, we have to make sure that the people managing these centers are focused on quality of care, first and foremost, not as we found um, in the beginning of, of my reporting and now in the current stage of the reporting, people whose main focus is the, the bottom line and making money. Just because something is a nonprofit doesn't mean it's spending its money well or um, serving its purported mission very well. And, and that said, I understand that, you know, all um, mental health facilities, just as all health facilities, you know, they need to keep the lights on, they need to pay the bills. But um, what we're seeing is people who are the caregivers, people who are went into this field to really help people um, who define themselves by that mission, um, having literally like, their own sort of crises of consciousness. They find themselves doing the most unethical things. Um, they find themselves in workplace environments um, where blowing the whistle or speaking out or saying, no, I'm not going to do that unethical or illegal thing. No, I'm not going to wheel a man who's 70 years old and delusional um, who came in with no shoes and no clothes and no underwear and is in a wheelchair, out in the wheelchair with no clothes, nothing on except a diaper and leave him, wheel him off the property because his Medicaid coverage has run out. So you've alluded to the fact that this is just the, the beginning. And uh, I know a lot of people are eagerly awaiting what you have to report next. What can you share with us um, in terms of what is coming next in this ongoing series? I can just say that um, we're doing a deeper dive into the mechanics of um, some of these ethical and legal um, breaches that are happening. And I'm not alone. I'm working with some of the best reporters in the state um, doing this work. And we have promised ourselves we're not going to stop until 
you know, we're at the bottom of all of this. And there's a lot, there's a lot of... Uh, You're not giving me many clues here. I thought maybe yeah. I have a nugget. Well, you know, I, your question was interestingly framed. You know, a lot of people are anxiously awaiting, you know, what comes next. I would urge those people who are anxiously awaiting what comes next, if you're referring to people in politics or in um these centers in particular, or the people who regulate them to really focus on what is supposed to be their jobs. Um, if we can find stuff that we have found and we um, are finding, and we will be publishing and, you know, the future, let's put it that way, they can find it as well. You mentioned your team. Um, I'm really curious about Colorado News Collaborative and the model. Uh, could you describe how this works? Yeah. So, I think everyone knows that um, the news industry is in a is hurting and it's been hurting um, for a long time now. Um, and the hurt gets to a point where we have mass massive news deserts um, in Colorado. Some of these centers have literally never been covered ever. Like most of them have never been covered ever. Right. Um, outlets don't have enough staff to do really deep dive investigative work. And so what we do at Colorado News Collaborative among other things, I mean, our, our main mission is to prevent news deserts in the state. So that means um, helping to elevate existing outlets that are willing and able and want to do really good quality journalism and or working with startups to um, do that type of accountability journalism where there is none. So what my job is, is to... Um, one is sometimes people will have a story that they just can't do alone. And so um, they call me and I do it with them and I walk them through it. And I, it's like hands-on kind of training, um, which is really better, we think, than any journalism school or internship you can get, you know, and sometimes that takes months. Um, and that brings the kind of journalism that really makes a difference in these communities. And the reporters and the editors take those tools and they use them for the next story or, you know, they we teach them how to do, for example, freedom of information requests. And we love it when, you know, uh, we're finished with a project and, and one of our partners is just like writing freedom of information requests all over the place for all manner of other topics. And so that's one thing we do. Um, and on this project, this was really more um Nobody really came to me with this. This was just, again, as I said at the top of the show, my curiosity. Why do we rank as a state the lowest in the nation for mental health illness and access to care? And so what I did is I compiled over several months a ton of data about all of the centers. And this data is not necessarily easy to come by. Um, and I shared it with all of uh, pretty much all the outlets throughout the state. And so... Some of them have localized the stories that I've been working on. Some of them are in the process of doing so right now. Um, and I coach them and work with them on that. And then in this sort of new phase, we're taking um, the fire hose of, of tips and whistleblowers who have come forward. The um, initial reporting in December really emboldened people who were have had um, these crises of conscience or wanted to blow the whistle or lost their jobs for saying, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, embolden them to come forward and tell them, um, their, tell us their stories. And so um, what we have is some of the top journalists um, 
you know, in the state, we're meeting, starting to meet weekly and we're kind of like dividing the beast, you know, um, you take this, I'll take that. And looking into um, several sort of topic areas and it's, it's a pretty powerful thing. We're new at this. We're only 18 months old. And, um, you know, I came up in newspapers and I came up in a, a time as, as did most journalists when, you know, the other outlets were competition, even people in your own news outlet were competition because you're all like vying for that one space on the front page. Right. Well, times have changed and, you know, our state and our, our institutions in the state and the um, people in power in the state for us to really, as a state of, of residents and voters make decent decisions about what kind of people we have in office and what kind of policies we have in place, we really have to work together, not competitively. We can't afford to do PAC journalism where you've got, you know, 20 people covering the state house, for example, but nobody covering like mm -hmm. huge counties that yeah. have no reporters. So yeah, the power of it is we're just discovering ways that it's powerful in ways that we never even expected. And you know, this story and this coverage has really run in, in um, most, if not all, of the big outlets. And I would say many, if not most, of the small outlets throughout the state. So you are uh, what I would label a kind of journalistic legend uh, here in Colorado. And you're at the forefront of something new here with uh, Colab. And so I think you're a particularly good person to ask this question of, if you encountered a young person who was thinking about going into journalism. What yeah. advice would you give them? Oh, I do this. I just got off the phone with one of those people. Um, I urge them to get their first jobs at a small outlet, not a big prestigious one, but a small one where you learn how to cover power, right? You learn how to ask questions. You learn all of these things that are just not, replaceable by bots and, um, you know, by people overseas doing journalism, you know, by telephone, right? Like that they really learn how to develop sources, um, how to develop relationships. They learn how to become the person that people blow the whistle to. They learn how to tell people's stories um, with sensitivity and a sense of responsibility. Um, they learn how to be fair. They learn how to um, go deep, go deeper than the the answers that um, politicians give us, or the no comments, or the press releases that I think many people in power would prefer replace news in this state. And so, you know, I'm kind of going to go back to your comment at the top of the show that people's feathers are ruffled. You don't get to run a state agency. You don't get to be a state lawmaker. You don't get to be governor and just say a bunch of platitudes about how mental health is important and we need to focus on it. You need to get into the weeds and get your hands dirty and figure out what is the experience like for people in Colorado who need this safety net as a matter of life and death. And, um, you know, so I say, I'm going to go back to the young reporter. Um, you're not going to get paid a lot. Um, it's a thankless job. 
people are often pretty actually nasty. And sometimes it is very disillusioning um, to see up close how the sausage is made in terms of laws and policy and, and how power works. But um, I would say to them, it is the most rewarding uh, work that I know of. And the people who do it, um, despite, you know, uh, assumptions that were cynic, cynical and were always trying to dig up dirt were actually the most idealistic people I know. And it is hard work. And I, for anyone listening, um, you know, I, I would ask them um, to think about what the state would be like without young or older or middle-aged, you know, level reporters doing this work um, and how much better the state would work and how much, um, you know, there's so much sort of atrophying and like um, so hard to move things in sometimes state government, right? Um, and I think this story is really interesting because what you have here are, are a lot of county officials, some of whom are like very conservative Republicans, right? Who um, may traditionally not have been, you know, big mental health care advocates, right? But they see what's happening in their states. And they're saying, they're looking at the state and they're thinking like, where are you? And um, they're the people, they're the counties, there's the, theirs are the budgets that get affected when there is no mental health care and these people end up in crisis in jails and then they don't even get the treatment that they're supposed to get in the jails. And so, you know, I'm going way beyond your question about the young journalist, but I would say, um, God, there's a lot of work to do. <laughs> you know? We could use 10 times the number of reporters we have on our little team um, on this and be working for a long, long time to get to the bottom of, of what, is wrong with this um, mental health system and also what is right in a few places where they're doing it right. Um, North Range in Greeley is one of the centers that does things very well. And unfortunately they get lost in the coverage because doing your job well doesn't necessarily make news, right? It's mm -hmm. not news if you do your job. In any case, I, I think there's so much improvement and I, um, do everything I can to help those young reporters because they have a ton, ton of questions, as do I, who I've been doing this for 30 years and I can't do any of this work without the kind of consultation and support and advice from my colleagues. Well, if I somehow ever stumble into a position of power, I will stay in my best behavior so I'm not the subject of a Susan Green investigation. And I appreciate what you do. Oh, I appreciate what you're doing. Thank you so much. Again, that mental health series is called On Edge, and you can read it and find out more about Susan Green and Colorado News Collaborative at colabnews.co. That's C-O-L-A-B-N-E-W-S.co. Remember to rate and subscribe, and I will catch you on the next episode.